Part of celebrating in a season like this is being aware that there are other celebrations that happen uh, in this season. The, uh, the calendars have coalesced in just the right way so that uh, the season of Hanukkah uh, has begun. And uh, uh, we are blessed this morning to have uh, uh, Joe Denba to... Uh, come and share with us a bit about the Hanukkah season to tell us uh, how that and uh, the Christian way uh, might intersect and how we might pay attention to uh, our brothers and sisters uh, who are Jewish uh, in our community. So Joe, come. Morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. (laughs) So let's start with the last point he made first about the intersection between Christianity, between Christmas and Hanukkah. And it's, it's actually really basic and fundamental because Hanukkah is the Jewish holiday about miracles. It's the, uh, the holiday that, that stands there to represent that miracles happen, more so than any other Jewish holiday. It's uh, perhaps considered a minor Jewish holiday in terms of it not being biblical, it being post-biblical, but nevertheless it's supremely important because uh, it's the clearest statement that miracles can happen even in our age. Uh, <clears throat> so the miracle had two parts. Uh, the year was 167 uh, BC, and what had happened is Alexander the Great had conquered uh, most of the known world west of Asia. Then late, and that was uh, a few hundred years prior. Then his he died, and his empire broke up into pieces. Uh, at eventually, the the Jewish people in Israel came under the control of 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 Greeks living in Syria. And so they were part of that empire, and, and there was peace, and the, the Jews had a level of home rule. Uh, but then for some unexplained reasons, uh, a, a tyrant ruler of Greek Syria banned the Jewish religion completely uh, and prohibited the uh, offerings in the temple or the teaching of Torah. And uh, a war broke out. Uh, and uh, during the war, the Jewish people really appeared like they were going to lose. They were, it was a lot like the Alamo. You know, they, they were, uh, <laughs> except the Alamo did, they did lose. But, but uh, they were uh, vastly outnumbered uh, and by a superior force. And yet, strangely, they won. Uh, the, the blessing we say over the holiday is that uh, God, uh, our Savior, delivered the weak into the hands, delivered the mighty into the hands of the weak and the many into the hands of the few. So that was the first part of the miracle. The second part of the miracle is they uh, were again able to enter the temple which had been uh, purposefully defiled, had been turned into a a temple of Zeus, uh, and they needed to rededicate it, to give it back to God. And that's what Hanukkah actually means. The word means dedication, like dedicating a a building. And in Leviticus, you read that uh, when you dedicate the temple, you have to offer offerings for eight days. And when they showed up, there was only oil to burn the fires for offerings for one day. And as uh, people are familiar with, uh, the fire kept burning. They they did their part in starting the, the fire for the offerings. And then, uh, and 
uh, as, a, as a parallel to the Christian idea of grace, God did the rest. Uh, and that's the second miracle, but that second miracle is a symbol of the first miracle. It's the idea that um, you do your part, you do what's right, and you are confident in a righteous cause, and then many times God will do the rest. And that's, uh, that's the principle of Hanukkah. It's, it's a holiday telling you that miracles do happen, and that's uh, obviously, uh, and it, it's the, the light that you kindle is especially significant in this uh, time of year where it's often very dark, and it's a, uh, it clearly uh, has a has a, a connection with uh, with the with Christmas and light in the darkness. So, thank you. Here he comes, the Word walking in a pool of his own light, sun brighter than the orb he created to hang in the daytime sky. He is more excellent than the angels. Bearing the imprint of God, more indelible than ink, his likenesses no ordinary tattoo. And if anyone asks, this heir to the throne, this son of goodness and grace was no afterthought. His spirit visited the worlds from the beginning. But we only came to know him as the babe as we smile down on the manger, tempted to coo and tickle his toes, it would be wise to recognize the shadow of the cross and what it cost the only begotten to pave the way for our reconciliation with God. Good morning. I'll be reading the first scripture, Hebrews 1, 1 through 12. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his spirit servants flames of fire. But about his son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter, scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has sent you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, 
and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. The word of the Lord. And the words from the gospel. This is from John, the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overpowered it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Christmas has finally, fully arrived. On schedule and full of possibility. The great confluence of a silent holy night and splendidly crass materialism. <laughs> a season that reminds us of the constant continual choice between Bedford Falls and Potterville. A sappy, mushy season when Bing Crosby can fall for Rosemary Clooney and Danny Kaye can fall for Vera Ellen. And snow in four-part harmony can fall in on command in Vermont. If you're not tracking with these favorite movies of mine, we've got some conversation to do. It is a season that can bring an overnight ceasefire to the killing trenches of World War I and give little Ralphie dogged hope in his quest for a Red Ryder BB gun. It is a season that generates the story of an undocumented immigrant infant savior in a manger and the story of a fourth century saint repurposed into an odd, fat old man surrounded by little people, Will Ferrell, and a red-nosed reindeer. <laughs> man, this is one odd holiday. <laughs> but then we live in an odd time, do we not? Those of us of a certain age remember the post-World War II consensus a literally bipolar world of good guys, a.k.a. capitalists, both labor and management, and bad guys, also known as communists, just communists. <laughs> then, 25 years ago tomorrow, we watched 
slack-jawed on CNN as the flag of the Soviet Union was lowered for the final time over the Kremlin. And we thought to ourselves, the good guys won. What a Christmas. In these past 25 years, this, this past quarter century, we in the USA have been the world's sole superpower. The indispensable nation was the term we coined for ourselves during the Bill Clinton presidency. Today, however, we're not so sure of that future. In my lifetime, we have as a nation and a people gone from the scary yet weirdly stable world of bipolar superpowers held in check by a doctrine of mutually assured nuclear destruction to the decidedly stupendous economic success and the decidedly mixed moral and ethical success of the world's first and only hyperpower with perhaps, perhaps a glimpse, the first glimpse of a world free of nuclear weapons to today's uncertain insecurity of a likely new arms race announced this week on Twitter. And yet Christmas has finally fully arrived on schedule, full of possibility. And it asks us, who will be our king? But within the various strands of the Christian experience in this American postmodern, post-Christendom culture, there is one truth that stands over and against all other truths. While postmodernity would have us believe there is no such thing as an overarching truth, no such thing as a meta-narrative, we gather here on this Christmas morning to refute that notion, to say that there is a great and grand plot that can shape and reshape our lives. His name is Jesus. And his backstory is told in part in our two scripture passages this morning. The first passage from the book of Hebrews and the prologue to the Gospel of John. The opening to the book of Hebrews is jarring. In verse 1 we read that the unchanging God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has just changed media strategies. Prophets, they're old school. In this new last era before the end of history, God has spoken with clarity and finality through his son, verse 2. And this is a wholesale change in the way we are to interpret the sacred texts. We call that act of interpreting sacred texts, hermeneutics. Big word. Won't be on the final, don't worry about it. This declaration, though, what the writer to the Hebrews says, calls us to reimagine how we think about God, how we think about God's mission, how we think about the world as it ought to be. The writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to interpret the Jewish world in light of two earth-shattering events. The Jesus story and the failed revolt of 70 AD that led to the destruction of the temple. These two events that come a generation apart 
forever changed, changes Judaism. The Jesus story contends that a Messiah has in fact come, but is a Messiah unlike anything that was expected. And oddly enough, this message begins to find residence among the Gentiles of the early Roman Empire. The Judean failure of 70 AD also had its messiahs, but they failed to hold the imagination of the nation and lost an armed revolutionary struggle against Rome. And it is against that backdrop of these two stories that the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to reach out to the Jewish people across the far-flung empire with the good news that Jesus is the one who champions God's mission of reconciliation. The writer to the Hebrews does this through a sophisticated blend of references to Second Temple Judaism and Greek philosophy. Going back and forth in verses 1 through 4, the writer blends classical notions of divinity, classical Greek notions of divinity, heir of all things, co-creator of the universe, radiance of God's glory, an exact representation of God's being, with a Hebrew understanding of God's mighty acts, purification for sin, seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, superior to the angels. He does this to make the point that Jesus isn't just a nice guy or a groovy teacher. Jesus is superior to, well, everything that is. Jesus is king, an embodied, real king. The writer to the Hebrews reinforces this point by pivoting to a classical Hebraic way of interpreting Scripture, the Midrashim, or commentary, on texts that are alike. The writer uses three such texts. He uses various psalms from the coronation liturgies of ancient Israeli kings. Psalms 2-7, 104 verse 4, 45, 6, and 7, 102, 25 to 25-27. Secondly, he uses historical literature from the enthronement of David the king, 2 Samuel 7-14 and 1 Chronicles 17-13. And thirdly, he uses the liturgical crescendo of God gifting the land of Israel to his people, Deuteronomy 32-43. In combining these texts together, the writers declaring that Jesus is king, the king of God's people, a king like David, a king distinct from David, a real flesh and blood king, a true heavenly king. God's new way is to set up a new kingdom led by his son, Jesus, who is as real as anything and greater than everything. This notion is reinforced and strengthened in the prologue to John's Gospel. This powerful prologue builds from verse 1 to verse 14 in power and majesty. Verses 1 through 5 lodge the Jesus story in the act of God's creation, intentionally mirroring the words of Genesis 1, John makes the same point the writer of the Hebrews does. Jesus is present and active at the time of creation. God's work is Jesus' work. 
before, during, and after creation, so that even in this present age of darkness, Jesus is the light that overcomes whatever form this present darkness takes. Verse 5. John then sets up in verses 6 through 8 the work of his namesake, John. This is where this gospel can get confusing. Which John are we talking about? The John that John is talking about is John the Baptist, who is not a denominational uh, qualifier. He's called the Baptist because of his commitment to a mission of purification through the ritual washings. Does that sound like Hebrews 1, maybe? At the heart of this purifying effort by John the Baptist is the understanding that God is on a mission to overcome darkness in every age. This light is both a coming reality, verse 9, and a defining reality, verses 12 and 13. Adoption. Adoption as God's children for those who would see the light. That's the promise. John, the gospel writer, brings this narrative to a powerful conclusion with his declaration that God's voice, the Word, has enfleshed, incarnated, become real, and is now the ultimate one who shows us how to live as God intended. How to live with grace. The ability to love the unlovable. And how to live with truth. The capacity to discern good from evil. God's reconciliation is complete, not because we have successfully concluded some quest for a mysterious God out there, but because the God of the universe has found a way into our fractured, tortured, God-denying lives through the living, breathing character of one real Jesus, an embodied king over all creation. So this incarnation matters. It matters a great deal. And I want to suggest for us this morning that it matters in at least three ways. First, in the incarnation, we know that King Jesus loves us completely. The incarnation is how God has spoken to us with the greatest clarity and the greatest love we can imagine. We often think the Bible is is a wonderful little book full of all kinds of nice ideas about how to be nice to other people. Contains all the answers to life's persistent and persnickety questions. But the incarnation teaches us that it's not about having a biblical understanding of Jesus as much as it is about having a Jesus-shaped understanding of the Bible. We, We want to pivot to the Scriptures, and believe me, I love the text. But when we pivot to the Scriptures and forget to bring Jesus along with us into that interpretive journey we indulge ourselves in a great adventure in missing the point. The Incarnation teaches us that Jesus loves us completely. Secondly, in the Incarnation, we discover that King Jesus redeems us entirely. 
The incarnation is the visible demonstration that God seeks out reconciliation with us and with all creation. God is not passively waiting for us to get it. God comes looking for us in the person of Jesus. We're not on a quest to figure out God. We are far too secular and postmodern for such religious activity. God is on a quest for us. God's looking for you and for me. And God is so totally committed to the reconciliation of all things that in Jesus, God was even ready to redeem the whole notion of kingship, which God never really wanted for his people, 1 Samuel 9, and with which we seem to always mess up really well. Kings are not particularly a successful way to lead people because bad things tend to happen. Because we forget that Jesus as king is also our servant. The one who loves us completely, redeems us entirely. And then thirdly, in the incarnation, we recognize that King Jesus champions us totally. The incarnation is the only way that evil can be entirely defeated. Evil is not even partially defeated when you and I pick up the weapons of domination, coercion, control, and fear and try to do the right thing with those weapons. Two wrongs don't make a right. The only way evil was and is and will be defeated is by God taking the form of a broken human being and taking on the sin of the world and overthrowing its power to control and contain our lives. King Jesus champions us totally. And so this morning, let me, uh, let me offer you the present of a few questions. How do we incarnate the character of Jesus? It is one thing for us to gather on a Sunday morning and unwrap the present that is the incarnation of Jesus into the world and say, glory, hallelujah, what a wonderful gift. It is quite another thing for us to wake up Monday morning and begin to ask, how do we incarnate Jesus in this world? How do we incarnate Jesus in our relationship with God? How do we incarnate Jesus in our relationship with one another in the church? How do we incarnate the character of Jesus in our relationship with those who oppose us or differ from us? How do we incarnate the character of Jesus in our relationship with people of other faiths? How do we incarnate the character of Jesus in our relationship with creation? And you can go on and on with those questions. But at its core, how will we incarnate the good news of Jesus in our lives? Finally, two quotes. 
because one just wasn't good enough. It's Christmas, after all. But I picked these two quotes deliberately. I picked them on purpose because they come from two distinctly different ideological points of view. Michael Spencer writes, without the incarnation, Christianity isn't even a good story, and most sadly, it means nothing. Be kind to one another is not a message that can give my life meaning, assure me of love beyond brokenness, and break open the doors of death with the key of hope. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the incarnation is the ultimate reason for why the service of God cannot be divorced from the service of man. little background. Michael Spencer was a libertarian, conservative, Southern Baptist, neo-reformed evangelical from Kentucky <laughs> who sadly died of cancer in 2010. He and I would not have seen eye to eye on any number of public policy issues of our time. He enjoyed preaching, but he didn't always like the church. His blog was read by and quoted by the likes of Glenn Beck, Michael Medved, Hugh Hewitt, Ann Coulter, and Sean Hannity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a liberal German Protestant state church Lutheran who was executed by the Nazis just hours before he would have been liberated from a concentration camp. He was a pastor, a writer, and the leader of an underground seminary that taught young German pastors in the art of spiritual formation for the resistance. In these two voices, one, a neoconservative American evangelical friend of talk radio, and another, a liberal, anti-Nazi German leader of the resistance to Hitler, there is agreement really on only one thing, the incarnation. The incarnation matters. It matters to everyone, everywhere, about everything. The incarnation is all that matters. The Incarnation is Christmas. The Incarnation shapes what it means to be a Christian. The Incarnation is the essence of a Jesus-shaped spirituality that transcends yours and my labels of conservative or liberal. The Incarnation is what fuels our hope, whether in the midst of a Cold War stability superpower solo act or what may be a future full of uncertain insecurity. The incarnation is what enables us to put up with each other. It enables us to put up with each other and still love one another. The incarnation is what enables us to tell the truth to each other and still love one another. The incarnation is what gives us strength to be friends and dialogue when possible, and resist and love the enemy when necessary. It's why we do what we do. Or at least, it had better be why we do what we do, or we forfeit identifying who we are and what we do as Christian. Christmas, the festival of the Incarnation, as it was once known, has finally fully arrived on schedule and full of possibility. Thanks be to God for the word become flesh. Thanks be to God that in these last days God has spoken through his son. Thanks be to Jesus 
the embodied king. This is our story. This is our redemption. This is our victory.